the church at Rome is a church in which the gospel is clearly uh, at work. Uh, Paul has heard uh, about them. Uh, but I want to remind us, I'll do this repeatedly, that, that Paul doesn't know uh, this congregation or the multiple congregations uh, in Rome. He's, he's not visited them uh, before. And so he's hearing about them. And the work that is happening in this church, a church made up of people whom he doesn't know, what he's hearing about the work of the gospel in this church, working on individuals, working on them uh, corporately, uh, just hearing this news encourages Paul to desire a fellowship with them and to desire to minister alongside them proclaiming the gospel to others. It's just, just hearing about them almost serves as an enticement for Paul to uh, get to know them, to fellowship face-to-face with them, and to labor alongside them. In the uh, 1960s, a famous architect, Mies van der Rohe, uh, was commissioned, this was his last commission, to uh, build a large structure in the city uh, of London. And the developer of the property, a man by the name of Lord Peter Palumbo, was uh, who, the one who commissioned uh, Mies van der Rohe, uh, sought out this architect, uh, sat down with him, d- uh, said what he wanted to build, an enormous building, some uh, 19 stories and a prime piece of real estate. And they had at least one conversation, uh, developer and architect, about what exactly this building uh, ought to look like. And uh, van der Rohe uh, replied weeks later with a box. The box arrived in the mail. Peter Palumbo opened the box and he found in it a stack of door handles and a travertine ashtray. That's what was in the box. And there was a small note uh, that came inside the box that said, is this what you had in mind? You think about that. An enormous multi-million dollar project looming over the city of London And Van der Rohe is thinking about door handles and ashtrays. Is this what you had in mind? Now, everyone knows that he was obsessed with uh, details, but there's something about this passage that uh, if, we, if we look deep down, we see that the, that the door handles of the passage is something as simple as the work of the gospel in individual lives. We're not here talking about a dramatic faith. We're not here talking about uh, a dramatic congregation. Uh, We're talking simply about the work of the gospel in individual lives. Uh, The door handles that make up the structure of the church. And it's the door handles that excite Paul. He has to be with them. He has to minister alongside them. He's energized to uh, continue in his ministry of the proclamation of the gospel. And it's the the tiny details in the life of this church that draw him in. Paul opens this passage by uh, admitting uh, their belief in the gospel is well known. Uh, Paul says that uh, in verse 8, their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Uh, Paul doesn't have to look very uh, far to find evidence of what's happening. Uh, Rome is the center of the world, and what happens there always seems to matter. Uh, Whether we want to admit it or not, what happens in New York City uh, matters uh, elsewhere in America. What happens in Los Angeles matters elsewhere. And what's happening in Rome right now is that people are becoming believers And they're living lives of the gospel. Their faith is proclaimed in all the world. And when Paul refers to their faith, he's referring to simply that. 
These are the kind of people whom Paul has already said are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In verse 7, they're loved by God, called to be saints. They're Christians. This ought to be a baseline expectation for what happens in the church. But Paul says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. That they're famous not only for believing in the gospel, but for living in the gospel. Living their lives according to, as Paul says it in verse 5, the obedience of faith. Now, as this reputation expands, for many, both in Rome and beyond, this actually wasn't good news. This was horrible news. Uh, During this time, Christianity was viewed as an alien superstition, An alien superstition that competes against the accepted practice of emperor worship. And so for Romans, in the very city of Rome, the very capital of uh, the world's power, for in that capital, the growth of Christianity uh, growing more and more, well, that would be the same thing as in the very capital of Rome, there's a growth in barbarianism. You see, a barbarian was someone who was uh, from the outside of the empire. It became uh, just a a shorthand expression for a foreigner whose language sounds, well, it sounds like gibberish. The uh, Greek word for barbarian, barbaros, sounds like gibberish. And so those who who don't speak uh, Latin or Greek, those who are completely uh, outsiders, those are the barbarians. And for Christianity to grow in the very capital is the worst thing that could possibly happen in many people's estimation. The growth of barbarianism in the very center of the city. Now, of course, for others... The growth of Christianity in the center of Rome, well, this was welcomed news indeed. We ought to pay attention to the fact that uh, Paul loves to see the church grow. And as Christians, we should always rejoice when people, even people whom we've never met, uh, hear the gospel, believe in the gospel, live in the gospel, Say nothing about uh, the uh, state of the church in a given country that we've never visited. Uh, We ought always to be excited about the work of the gospel in the lives of people with whom we've never met. And now keep in mind that some 15 years earlier in Paul's life, when Paul used to hear of Christianity growing, uh, growth in the followers of the way, as we read about in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, it used to be, 15 years earlier when Paul heard that news, well, he was motivated to hunt them down and to kill them. But not now. Now, when he hears of people hearing and believing and living in the gospel, he wants to be with them. He wants to minister alongside them. He's energized. He's encouraged. He's thankful to God for the growth of Christianity. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He had nothing to do with their growth, but he praises God for them. How central it is to this man's heart that more and more people would hallow the name of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And then Paul moves on in verses 9 and 10. He he thanks God for their faith to be sure, but that thankfulness for what is happening in Rome uh, actually unfolds to reveal something more, almost uh, taking an origami figure and unfolding it and looking at what it's all about, looking at the paper itself, the raw ingredients, because Paul is thankful for what's happening there, but it exposes a great desire deep inside of him to visit them, to be with them, Paul confesses this sincere desire to meet with him. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul's saying that God himself, the one who knows his every thought, the one who knows his every motivation, his every emotion, that God can himself testify to Paul's depth of sincerity to be with them. He says in verse 10, surely at last I'll succeed in coming to you. He desires to be with him. Skip forward to verse 13 and he says, brothers and sisters, I have often intended to come to you. What great affection he has for people whom he's never met. He doesn't say why he's been prevented from coming He doesn't say, as he says to the Thessalonians, that he has been uh, hindered or that uh, Satan is preventing him. He doesn't tell us what's prevented him from coming. But he does say that his heart's desire is to be with them. It's almost as if we can actually feel Paul's dilemma. As Paul makes his way through Christian life, as we make our ways through uh, Christian life, We're practicing discernment. There's some things that we want to do, some things that uh, we want to do but can't do. And Paul, he he wants to be in Rome. He wants to be with these uh, brothers and sisters. But there always seems to be other tasks that need to be tended to more, or so it seems. But we know what this is like. Wanting to do something, a desire to do something, uh, being stopped by rather ordinary means, or uh, wanting to do something, but something else uh, trumps it as being more important. But pay attention to what Paul wants more even than to be in Rome. He wants God's will. He wants God's will. In verse 10, he's very clear that God's will comes first. Despite desperate longings of the heart, he is going to do only what God wants. This is what it means, doesn't it? To be a servant of Christ Jesus, as he says in verse 1. His heartfelt desire is real, is sincere. He makes plans as he navigates the Christian life. But he isn't a pragmatist and he isn't a strategist. He's a servant. He waits on God. The desire of the heart are sometimes God's will, and sometimes the desires of our heart aren't God's will. Our strategic plan is sometimes uh, godly and a part of God's will, uh, but sometimes our strategic plan is just that. It's just a plan, and it never unfolds, and it's not God's will. Uh, John Stott says that No Christian is a free thinker. We ought to agree with that. No Christian is truly a free thinker. A Christian is someone who is uh, subject to the will of God in Christ Jesus as their Lord and as their head. 
Yeah, but this is what Stott says. He says, look, uh, really to be uh, subject to the desires of your heart, subject to uh, pragmatic aims, subject to strategizing, he says it's kind of a bondage, isn't it? Isn't there a sense in which to follow God's will, someone who is other than you, other than me, is someone who is completely independent, to follow God's will is a kind of release from bondage. The bondage of simply chasing after every desire of my heart or the, the, the bondage of pragmatism, the bondage of strategy making. Jesus Christ is our only Lord, is our only head. We need to see that as Paul is explaining to his brothers and sisters in Rome the, the structure, as it were, of his affections. He wants to be with them. But God has prevented him. But maybe someday he'll be with them. But it's God's will in all things, all circumstances. Don't think that you're the only one who makes plans, but then doesn't see those plans come to fruition. Maybe ever, or the way you want. And then in verses 11 through 14, Paul actually gives a couple of reasons why he desires so much to be with the Roman Christians. And he says it this way. He says, uh, first of all, that he desires to be with them, that he might strengthen them. I want us to park there for a while. Uh, but he'll next say that he desires to be with them, that he might reap some harvest among them. But first, to strengthen them. He says in verse 11 that he wants to impart some spiritual gift. What does he mean to impart some spiritual gift? Does Paul mean that he has a unique giftedness that he plans to deploy in Rome, that he's uh, functioning as a unique uh, apostle with a unique gift, only he has it, uh, but he, and he wants to deploy it in Rome? I don't think that's what he means at all. One scholar says that Paul is being intentionally indefinite right here, intentionally indefinite. If Paul's not clear what he means by imparting some spiritual gift. He doesn't call it out or name it. Paul, it would seem, just means that he wants to offer himself whatever he has, whatever abilities that he has, uh, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to make these gifts, these abilities, whatever he has, uh, beneficial to the Christians in Rome. He's, he's being indefinite here. But why this focus on strengthening them? I mean, elsewhere, Paul is going to say that ultimately, really, it's God that strengthens us. We can skip all the way to the very end of Romans. In chapter 16, verse 25, uh, that beautiful doxology, he says, to him who is able to strengthen you. God's the one who strengthens us. Over and over again in Paul's letters, he uh, tells us that it is God who strengthens, but he actually believes that that strengthening of God comes about sometimes through human agency, if not all the time. Look at verse 11. Paul longs to see them. He longs to be face-to-face -face with them. Do you remember how Paul was pining uh, for the Thessalonian Christians? Uh, and, and he uh, was so frustrated that he couldn't be with them that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, uh, he actually sends Timothy in his place. How important it was to have that human agent in contact with the life of the church that the church would be strengthened. God delights in using human agency in the strengthening of his church, uh, even though he himself is the ultimate author of strengthening. I want to offer a unique proof to what exactly Paul is saying. 
It's hard to prove, but I wonder if Exodus chapter 17 is in the back of Paul's mind. Uh, there are a couple of words in this passage that we find in Exodus 17, 12 uh, in, the, in the Greek. It's, it's the same word, that, that, and one of those is the word for strengthening. Do, do you remember what happens in uh, Exodus 17? It's uh, approximately uh, two months after uh, the Hebrew people are delivered from Egypt. Uh, and uh, as they are in Rephidim, uh, the uh, army of uh, Amalek uh, attacks the Hebrew people. Uh, and so here these people are in the desert uh, and they're being attacked. You may or may not remember this, but you will remember this. Moses commands Joshua to take some men and to fight. And while he stands on an overlooking hill, you know, what Abe, you know what Moses is doing, right? Moses is standing with the staff above him. And Moses stands on that hill watching what's happening as Joshua fights. And the staff is raised over him. But he gets tired after a while. As the staff uh, falls... The enemies prevail. As he raises the staff, Joshua and the army prevails. You remember the scene. Well, you, you also remember what happened. Uh, Aaron and Hur notice that Moses is getting tired. He, he can't make it the entire day. And so uh, they give him a stone to, to sit on and they stand next to him. And they're actually holding his arms up so that uh, those arms would stay high, so that God's staff would be elevated, so that uh, Joshua and the men would prevail against Amalek. Moses' hands were strengthened by Aaron and Hur. God uses the agency of Aaron and Hur to help Moses. Isn't that interesting? He uses, he uses Aaron and Hur to strengthen Moses' arms. But not only is Moses helped, Aaron and Hur are helping Moses, holding up his arms. But Aaron and Hur aren't only, hoping, uh, aren't only helping Moses, they're helping Joshua, that he might fight and prevail. And not only is Joshua helped, but in a strange way, Aaron and Hur, the ones that are holding up Moses' arms, the ones that are strengthening Moses, Aaron and Hur, they themselves are actually strengthened in their exercise of strengthening Moses. And they're strengthened because as Joshua prevails, Joshua is winning the safety and the freedom of the people. Joshua's fighting on their behalf. And so we have everyone being helped by Aaron and Hur holding up the arms of Moses. Everyone is helped. Everyone is strengthened. Exodus 17 is this beautiful orchestration of strengthening. And one wonders if this is in the back of Paul's mind as he desires to be with the Roman Christians that he might strengthen them because of what he says in verse 12. He wants to be there so that he can strengthen them. But Paul knows that as he is there strengthening them, he's used by the Holy Spirit that he too is strengthened. He says that they will be mutually encouraged Together, he's explicit about it. I'm coming to strengthen you, but you are strengthening me as well. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift of God. This is how God strengthens. And it's important for us to see that. 
We see here Paul filled with a sincere desire to be with them, that he might strengthen them. But he has no ego at all, does he? He knows that they can strengthen him as well. There's modesty here. John Calvin, when he looks at this passage, he says that uh, not only is there modesty, but Paul seems to believe that this congregation made up of strangers is filled with people who have the power and ability to strengthen him. Paul understands himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, a proclaimer of the gospel in all the world. But in this one congregation in Rome, Paul says that no person is void of the necessary spiritual gifts to strengthen another person in the life of the church. Paul knows that. I go there, I'm around Christians, and I'm going to be strengthened. I don't care who they are. I don't care what kind of education or experience they have. Christians strengthen Christians. In that picture of Aaron and her holding Moses' arms on a hill, strengthening Joshua, who in turn through victory strengthens Moses and Aaron and her, is a beautiful orchestration of God's mercy in the life of the church. You know, all of this works according to the gospel working inside of us. If you look again at Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. How does Paul go on? Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, Paul says that they will strengthen how? By each other's faith. By your faith and my faith. I want all of us to notice that Paul is not saying that it's only going to be the, the faith of the strong that encourage me. I'm so, afar, I'm so far in my Christian walk that not all of you can strengthen me by your faith. About 20% of you can. It's not what he's saying. It's part of the Christian life. As God, uh, through the gospel, works in us, uh, hearing and believing and then living lives in the gospel with a tremendous limp, sometimes with extraordinary sloppiness, even still, Paul believes that the faith that we have encourages one another by each other's faith, both yours and mine. <laughs> What's Paul imagining? Believing the gospel of grace, walking in the gospel of grace, that's exactly how we strengthen one another. As I grow in grace and you grow in grace, we're actually imparting strength to one another by God's great mercy. You see, the gospel is itself a message of grace. Next week, we're going to look at just two verses, verses uh, verse 16 and 17, uh, really the theme, uh, perhaps even the outline of uh, Paul, Paul's entire letter. But this gospel, it's a message of grace, a, a promise of salvation to who? To undeserving sinners. And we, we forget this when we live as, uh, for instance, legalists, when we live as those who think that they can perform to earn God's favor. We boast in our righteousness. That's not the gospel working in us. It's something else. We have forgotten that the gospel is a promise of salvation for undeserving sinners. 
but not just living as legal, legalists, but sometimes we uh, squander the gospel of grace when we live as uh, libertines, uh, little anarchists, uh, thinking that we can do whatever we want uh, because we are saved by the gospel and what we're doing is we're actually reserve, uh, refusing to serve uh, the bidding of the king. Both of these things, legalism and living as anarchists, they're important to notice in our lives because Paul says that the gospel is a promise to those who don't deserve salvation and those who are then saved by the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Those kind of people, well, there's no room for boasting and there's no room for negligence. These are the kind of people who know who they are. It goes beyond their imagination who they are, that they could be loved so much by God, it floors them. Paul is going to, underst- going to say later that actually understanding the grace of the gospel is key to a strong church body. In many ways, Romans 1 through 8 is an explanation of what the gospel is, and Romans 12 through 15 is the evidence of that gospel working in the corporate life of the church. 1 through 8 and 12 through 15. That's what Paul's unfolding before us. But what I want us to understand is that what Paul knows is happening in the church at Rome is that the gospel's working on their lives. And Paul is devoid of praising them for their ministries, praising them for their structure, praising them for their denomination. I'm speaking a little tongue-in-cheek to be sure. But Paul is praising God for the work of the gospel, coming into their imperfect lives, working very, very slowly. They're the door handles of a 19-story building, and Paul loves them. It's just the gospel working in our lives. That's what makes the church special. Now, Paul says in verses 13 and 14 that he wants to reap some harvest. His words, reap some harvest among them. Paul wants to be with them to strengthen them, but also to make converts. Now, what do you think Paul is saying here? Paul seems to be indicating that the work in Rome is not only not done... But it may be that some of the addressees of this letter, some of the people who are a part of the congregation at Rome, uh, maybe they are unconverted people. Verse 13 is a very challenging verse. Paul wants to be with them. But he seems to be saying that in the church are people who are not converted. And if they're not converted, they're not really in the church. They're fooling themselves. But to be sure, Paul is largely talking about further ministry among Gentiles. That's what he talks about in verse 14. Uh, When he speaks about Gentiles, he uh, makes this categorization of what would seem to be all non-Jewish people uh, in the world. Uh, He says Greeks and barbarians, they're referring to uh, a Greco-Roman kind of people who are attached to the Roman Empire in an official way, and those people who are actually uh, barbarians, they're outsiders. They're uh, perhaps they're people that live beyond the official boundaries of the Roman Empire, but it could be that they're uh, right there in the city, uh, but they don't belong to the Roman Empire the way others belong to the Roman Empire. But Paul seems to be here casting a very large net to capture all Gentiles, uh, those who are uh, Roman and those who are 
barbarian, uh, those who are politically connected to Roman culture and those who aren't. Uh, Rome's the capital of the Roman Empire, but in a sense, it's also the capital of the world. And so in 14, Paul's using shorthand to describe the entire world. But not just that. He says, not merely the entire world, Greeks and barbarians, but the wise and the foolish. There's wise and foolish within the Roman Empire, and there's wise and foolish who are among the barbarians. And scholars have wondered why Paul makes this distinction between wise and foolish. Perhaps he makes the distinction because of his own academic background. Uh, He, in a Jewish setting, is an intellectual elite. But Paul's not limiting his ministry to any one subset of the Gentile world, to either Romans or to uh, barbarians. Uh, He's not even limiting to a subset of the wise as opposed to the foolish. Uh, Paul is saying that he's actually under obligation, has a spiritual duty to proclaim the gospel to all. He doesn't care. He'll reach everyone. I think about this sometimes when I uh, think about apologetic techniques that are applied to a certain kind of people. And we know that Paul preaches, for instance, different, different kinds of sermons, Acts 17, Acts 14, to be sure. But when we look at this, Paul feels that he has an obligation to just preach the gospel to anyone and everyone. That's a pretty hard thing for many of us to admit. No, 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 I preach the gospel to a certain kind of people, not those kind of people. I'm not saying that's an unreasonable discussion to have, but Paul's not making that argument here. You may be the most uneducated person in the room, and yet God used you to proclaim the gospel to an academic elite, and vice versa. And Paul summarizes things in verse 15. He says, so I'm eager, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He wants to be with them to strengthen them. And he wants to be with them to proclaim the gospel that more would become converted. Now, I want us to step back for a little bit and try and discern what this means as I tie things together. Paul is drawn to these people. He had nothing to do with them. Someone someone showed up in Rome or a multitude of people showed up in Rome preaching the gospel. And the people Paul is writing, uh, they've heard the gospel. They have believed in the gospel. And yet here they are in the most important city of the ancient world, arguably so. And Paul makes no deference to that at all. They're just like any other church. The gospel is proclaimed, they hear and they believe and they live in that gospel. That's all. The nuts and bolts of a church. And Paul hears about this. The the small, minute box of handles worth of hearing the gospel and believing. And that's enough for Paul. That's enough for him. There's a reason why I'm drawing our attention to this. I think it is very easy in American Protestantism to get lost in details that have very little to do with the gospel. We talk about uh, strategizing uh, in the form of a a movement that's going to uh, go out and entice the world for Jesus Christ. We talk about um, saturating our culture in such a way that we uh, change uh, cultural uh, structures and institutions. We uh, talk about the uh, grandness of a particular uh, congregation 
this congregation, for instance. But what is it that Paul is so enticed to? An enormous city with a congregation of believers that are clearly dwarfed by the inhabitants of their city. Whatever we might have said about Thessalonica is intensified in Rome. A tiny little body of stragglers who've heard the gospel and have placed their trust in someone else. A virtually unknown Jew from the Middle East. And what that man did on the cross is everything for them. There's a sense in which they're just a speck of dust in the city of Rome. And it sure would be great if we would be willing to admit we're just a speck of dust in the city of Chattanooga. And yet, and yet we have heard the gospel and we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. It's almost too much to behold. What more is there in life? It's not your career or your status. To Paul, this is everything. He has to be with these people. There are believers there. I want to finish by just asking us this question. You know, why doesn't the gospel working in the lives of others drive us more and more to do work in the gospel? You know, why isn't that the most exciting thing in all of the world? That someplace on the opposite side of the globe, uh, that someone hears the gospel and they believe. Why is that not the most exciting thing to us? On the other side of the world, someone whose language I don't understand, they don't know me at all, and yet we are united more intimately than my next door neighbor who doesn't believe in the gospel. Why doesn't that excite us and thrill us? Hallowing the name of God. It's the greatest thing in the world. There's nothing better. Why doesn't the gospel working in the lives of others, why doesn't it drive us more and more to live in the gospel, to be a part of the church in which we talk about the work of the gospel in our lives? And, and it could be simple, right? It could be uh, we just don't know about the gospel working in the lives of others. We need to hear more from those who are engaged in uh, global missions that we would uh, understand that you're not the only believer and your church isn't the center of, center of the radiance of Jesus Christ. The church is large. There are believers all over the world. And it could be we just don't hear enough about the gospel working elsewhere. But it may also be that we underappreciate the magnificent work of the gospel in others. Do you have a brother or a sister in Christ whose sanctification seems so remarkably weak right now that you're not sure who they are? If they profess faith in Jesus Christ, there is a remarkable work going on in their heart right now. It is your job as a Christian, your obligation as a Christian to love on them, to care for them, to delight in being with them, to, to, to know that the work of sanctification in their lives will one day be brought to completion, even if right now it looks just a little bit shoddy. And it could be that we actually underappreciate the magnificent work of the gospel in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But it could also be this. It could also be that we ourselves don't understand how the gospel works inside of us. We ourselves have found other things to call important. We are like what uh, D.A. Carson says, I only want $2 of the gospel. That's all I really need. Then you shall have none of it. 
It could be that we uh, actually uh, don't understand ourselves how the gospel works inside of us, claims us, grows inside of us, transforms us. And that is what Paul is going to tell us about in chapters one through eight. That is what we need to hear. So next week, we'll look at 16 and 17, and we'll talk about the nature of the gospel as Paul prepares to unfold before our very eyes something that we so easily forget. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have saved us in the gospel of grace. Would you make us more and more aware of your rich mercy? Our Father, would you forgive us for thinking that we need anything more than the work of your grace and your presence with us moment by moment? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.